0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. what if I was to tell you that heart disease is the number one killer today? However, traditional heart disease protocols, with their emphasis on lowering cholesterol, have it all wrong. Emerging science is showing that cholesterol levels are a poor predictor of heart disease and that standard prescriptions for lowering it, such as ineffective low-fat slash high-carb diets and serious side-effects, uh, causing sat- statin drugs, sorry, uh, obscure the real cause of heart disease. Even doctors at leading institutions have been misled for years, based on creative reporting of research results from pharmaceutical companies intent on supporting the three 3- thirty-one billion a year cholesterol-lowering drug industry. Today's conversation, my friends, is with Dr. Johnny Bowden who is a board-certified nutritionist with a master's degree in psychology. He's a nationally known expert on nutrition, weight loss, and health. He's the, he's the author of several best-selling titles, including The 100, 150 Healthiest Foods on Earth. Man, I'm struggling to get these words out today, aren't I? <laughs> the Most Effective Ways to Live Longer and The 150 Most Effective Ways to Boost Your Energy, along with his new book, uh, The Great Cholesterol Myth. Um, which actually came out all the way back in 2012, believe it or not. He is the nutrition editor for Pilates Style, a contributing editor for Clean Eating, and a columnist for both America Online and Better Nutrition, along many many things. I thoroughly enjoyed learning from um, Dr. Johnny Bowden, so I had to I had to have him on twice because there was just so much to actually cover revolving around the area of cholesterol and so many other factors too. So you can go and get a copy of Dr. Johnny's book. Uh, The link for that will be in the show notes below. I've combined both of the conversations that I've had. So this conversation might be a little bit longer than what you guys are, are used to, but I hope that you guys can get a lot of important information from Dr. Johnny as well. Also, don't forget that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, is now out in the world. You can still get a copy uh, right now. I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes below to do just that. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me in the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Johnny Odin.
1: I am so delighted to be on there, You're in Australia, correct?
0: I'm in Sydney, Australia. We're calling you yeah, all
1: the way. Best podcasts from from Australia. They call me sometimes and they say, well, do you want to do it? It's in Australia. I say, are you kidding? The best podcasts. I've done so many of them. And I don't know why, but thank you. I, have, I seem to have a lot of followers and fans there, and I, I couldn't be happier about it. So whenever I hear Australia, I go, yeah, that's going to be good.
0: That is totally Mm -hmm. awesome. Well, hopefully this next interview that you do will be the best one that you've done yet. No, I I don't want to jinx it. But uh, before we dive into your backstory, uh, Dr. Johnny, I have one question that I I love asking all my guests at the very start, which is what does success look like to you?
1: Oh, what a wonderful question. It has looked different to me at many different stages over my lifetime. What it looks like now to me is exactly what I have. And by that, and let me make sure that it's very clear what I mean by that, because it I don't want it to sound like this is what my last few years meditation practice, my my just my personal growth has been about loving where you are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I am incredibly happy where I am. And I and and not because I don't want to do anything else, not because I'm a multimillionaire and I have everything, but because I genuinely feel that I'm I am so incredibly lucky to be doing what I'm doing. I get paid for doing the most interesting shit in the world. I mean, come on. I interview people like David Perlmutter and 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 you know the guy who oh, wrote Wheat Belly, uh, uh, William Davis, and 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 you know, just bold-faced names like that. And I get to talk to them about interesting things, like you do. Great jobs, mm. and I get to write books about subject or articles about subjects that I'm interested in. Mm. And I have a very, I have a small but incredibly comfortable, beautiful house that I love living in. I have dogs that I spend time with every day. I am passionately in love with my partner of eleven years. Wow, what more do you need? <laughs> I mean, I had a couple of friends, I had a birthday recently and they were celebrating tomorrow and they said, we don't know what to get you. You have everything. I said, you don't have to get me anything. I have Michelle, my partner. I have you guys, my friends. I have my health. I play tennis every day. What am I, this is to me, that is success. And not because my success is any greater than somebody else's I've achieved so much. Most of my books have not been bestsellers. I, you know, It's because I feel that success is really something when you are content with where you are Mm. and where you are, you feel that you're making a contribution that some people accept and like and appreciate it, that you have friends that you can count on and that can count on you, Mm. that you have relationships with your environment, with your animals, with your people. Man, I don't know. I don't know how it gets much better than that. So, I, I mean, that's what I want for everybody I talk to. I My birthday uh, last week, I was 74. What? And when I talk to my audiences, which tend to be between 30 and 59, I want them to know what can be ahead for them.
0: Mm.
1: That you do not have to look like an old guy. You don't have to look like a decrepit, you don't have to slow down or if you do, you do it in a way that is very adaptive and 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 another form of success. And um I, you know, my message I feel is it to me, it's even more important to get out because I have seen what happens to people my age if they don't do the stuff I say to do. Mm. They don't look and I'm not saying this because I look so great, but I know the people my age because I play tennis with them. I play tennis with people aged 14 to 87. No kidding. And a lot of them are in their 60s to 80s in that range. And I know what they look like when they don't do that. And these are the people who exercise. Mm. And because I know how great it can be, if you do a few basic habits and you eat right, and you, um, I want that for everybody. Mm. I, I it breaks my heart when I see people hobbling around going, well, I'm getting old. No, dude, you're getting old up here. Mm. And, and I don't mean that to mean that there's no slowing down in the body, that there's no metabolic changes, because of course there are the, the best example, I guess I can give you a success with that kind of liability built into it is my own tennis playing. So I have severe arthritis of the right shoulder. Arthritis is is classed as mild, moderate, and severe. Severe is like, there's no cartilage, dude. This is over. This guy's gonna be lucky to lift his hand. That's what I had in the right shoulder. So I was told you can really forget about tennis playing and you're not even a, a, a candidate for surgery even if you wanted it. And I now play the best tennis I've ever played in my life. I play five to six times a week. I have no pain and I'm playing better than ever. And one of the reasons that that worked is I had to make some adjustments. I can't grow new cartilage. There is none. I did physical therapy for a year religiously. I designed a supplement program for joint health, which I take to this day religiously. I practiced, I worked around the injury. I became a doubles player. I became a two handed forehander. And guess what? I'm the most successful tennis player I know. And people who play with me, doctors, who, who are in my regular group say, when we treat our, we've changed the way we treat arthritis because of you. Wow. I'm not on any arthritis medications. I I can do all of this stuff with my hand. And so what I guess I mean, bringing it back to success is that success doesn't have to look like I'm a Wimbledon player. I'm not a Wimbledon player in life. I'm not one of the guys that Tim Ferriss interviews when he does tools of Titan and he talks to Bill Gates and Michael Jordan. No, but I am so content with what, I have with, and I I think a big part of success in life is learning that there are some things that are like the cards you dealt. And then there's this whole area of how good you plan. And backgammon and poker are the perfect model for that. You cannot control what the dice give you. You cannot control what the cards give you. But there are people who make a few hundred thousand dollars a year playing poker because they know what to do with the cards they're given. And that's kind of my point about the tennis for me. So to me, success is kind of having a lot of resources to be able to make the best out of whatever the universe deals you. And and if you can do that, you you really go into
0: the world with a big advantage. Yeah. Firstly, I want to say happy birthday. You don't. Uh, thank you. You don't look seventy, or you don't act over seventy. Thank you. Uh, you man. act so <laughs> yeah. much younger than that. You <laughs> I'm 24 at the moment. So okay. you're you're well ahead in years. Wow. From, but also knowledge, but yet you act so young. And one of my questions to you to start off with, I love your definition of success, by the way. And I love how you related it to tennis. I think that's a, an, an important you, analogy man. for people, um, for those especially that do love tennis. Um, my question to you is what, what do you do in your day that builds up that energy, that gets you out of bed in the morning, uh, awake, alive, and ready for your day? What are some of the things that you do? Um,
1: you know, I do I do so many things. It, it's very difficult for me to answer what difference does, for example, hormone replacement make. A lot. But how do I separate that? from the 58 supplements I take a day? And how do I separate the effect of that from the fact that I play about two hours a day of tennis? And how do I separate that from how I monitor my sleep? Mm. I think all of these, my idea of health is that it's like a bank, it's like a bank account. And you get to make, we sometimes make withdrawals from that bank account. We do drugs. We skip meals. I mean, and these withdrawals can be minor, like when you take $10 out of the ATM, or they can be major bank, you know, <laughs> bank-busting withdrawals. Like, you know, I was an alcoholic for 20 years. Whatever they happen to be, those are withdrawals. And then you make deposits. It might be that you take 5,000 use of vitamin D every day. That's a deposit. It's not going to change your life. It's going to put a deposit in there. Now, the idea just like with a checking account, is to put more money in than you take out. Mm. And if you do that, you'll have a positive balance. So I think I'm constantly kind of tweaking what I do, but there are some things that I have a routine, I have a ritual. I believe in rituals. I think they are stabilizing and grounding and they set the tone for the day. And again, to go back to Tim Ferriss, he's a famous podcaster who's interviewed a very wide number, uh, you know, a range of incredibly successful people in every area of life. And he, he assembled this book called The Tools of Titans to talk about what do they all have in common? One of the things that 80% of them had was a ritual.
0: Yeah.
1: And it could be anything. For me, it's make the bed, drink eight ounces of water feed the dog, you know, whatever it is. But I it grounds and centers my day. That's number one. Number two, I've created a life and it didn't happen accidentally. And I didn't walk into it. But I've created a life that has a lot of joy in it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when I wake up, I don't have to like, oh, shit. I never wake up like, oh, shit, ever. I mean it's not that I haven't had periods like that but I mean I've constructed a life where energy and optimism are natural byproducts of living they just kind of come with the territory and I monitor my thoughts a lot because I know that we have some choice about how we perceive things and how we frame things and when stuff doesn't go the way I want to try I try I exercise that muscle that's that muscle is exercised during meditation in the same way my biceps are exercised, exercised in the garage with the Bauflex. You train them, you work them so that in real life, when you have something to pick up, it's a lot easier because you've already trained them. The exact same thing is true with being able to handle adversity, disappointment, challenges, COVID, you name it they require you to adapt and to have some resources available. So it's like if you had a big toolbox with 8 million different tools in it, you come, you're repairing something, you go, oh, this one needs a three inch screwdriver, but it also needs a special hat. You've got the tools.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's kind of, I think, I, I, it's not a perfect answer. It's not like I take spirulina every day and that's why I'm like this. Um, I think all those things have contributed a lot to, to, to,
0: how lucky, and a lot of luck, a
1: lot of luck.
0: Yeah. I love that answer because I have to say I'm very similar in what I do. I have my daily rituals which make me more happy. They make me more yes. filled in life and they keep me in a state of feeling healthy, content, and grat- just being in a state of gratitude really. Um, I always get up at four in the morning without, a, without fail. Some people think it's crazy. But for me, there was a reason behind it because I was actually in hospital for bowel problems in 2017 and I sat in a chair at 4 a.m. and watched the sun come up. I realized it was a beautiful like... Great time of day, right? It was perfect. And I realized I I could be outside in watching that sun rise outside running and actually taking care of my health rather than being in this hospital bed sick as a dog and because I put myself there. That was my choice. So nowadays that I get up, I'm always in a state of I am grateful that no matter what comes my way during the day, I am going to firstly thank god for being alive secondly i'm going to get out there exercise spend time in fresh air um, and they always say sleep starts directly in the morning when you get up right yeah especially when you have the sun rising so it's kind of like that that ritual that i have and i love how you mentioned tim ferris because if you've seen his if anyone's seen his tools for titans book it's like huge <laughs> It's massive but it is it for bicep curls when I kids <laughs> if we don't have any weights, we know what to use. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's such a, a powerful thing, um, Dr. Johnny, that you mentioned there about the rituals. And I love how you're so positive and so energetic. But one of the things that you mentioned during that uh, that um, explanation was you said that you're addicted for 20 years and I wanted to be addicted to alcohol. And I wanted to go oh, back not to you. <laughs> I, was, I was getting to that. But I wanted to dive back into how sure. you started doing all this in the first place and, and what those addictions actually did to your mindset.
1: Who knows? Uh, I, I, I tell you, you know, sometimes people ask you, is there anything you would do differently or is there anything you wish hadn't happened in your life? And so, I have noticed that even some of the most painful experiences, I mean, mm. my divorce, my uh, breakups that were just devastating to me. I, it, looking back, if I had a magic wand, to, I would not remove any of them. Mm. I, if you asked me why I was going through them, I would have said, oh yeah, take this away, please. But they really do help shape who you are and if you if you come to accept and love who you are you know that you wouldn't be this that person wouldn't be the same without having gone through those challenges so um, yeah I, I definitely had some periods like that but um, I, I would not trade them for the world because they were shaping experiences and by the way my my experience in addiction, I think made me a way better weight loss coach and and a coach for people trying to transform their bodies because uh, addiction's addiction. And whether it's food addiction, carbohydrate addiction, addiction to drama, addiction to alcohol, addiction to, it is addiction and it is the same kind of compulsive need for something to happen outside yourself or or to make you feel a certain way. And um, that's certainly what food is for many people. And I think my Personal experience with that helped me to understand a lot of my clients in a
0: way that many people don't. Mm. Have you done like a deep dive into why you got addicted in the first place? I think it makes,
1: who cares? Mm. My feeling is who cares? You know, they have a saying in AA, not that I'm an AA person. I, I went for 90 days. I went. It helped me greatly. I just don't, I'm not a good, I just don't go anymore. Um, but they have a saying in there, the, why do you drink? People say, said, because it's Tuesday. Cause it's sunny. Cause it's raining. There's no reason. It doesn't matter. It's like, have you ever wondered why you're a diabetic? It doesn't matter. This is what you got. This is what we have. Let's deal with this going forward rather than looking in the rear. There are a hundred narratives you could put on why anybody is anything. Right. Um, someone is very frightened and unable to have personal relationships or intimacy or sex. And you go, oh, well, they were abused when they were kids, obviously. But there's going to be somebody else who was abused the same way and they're having a wonderful sex life. Mm -hmm. So it's really just the thing. It's how it's processed. It's how it it is integrated or, or not integrated into yourself and how you deal with it and what you make it mean. So again, it's like nobody's recommending abuse. Nobody's recommending being cocaine addicted. I'm saying that these things affect different people in different ways. And we must always remember the individual in that equation, that it isn't just that. And it's the same thing with food. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm always asked about, is this a good food or a bad food? So I talk about my backyard. I have a lot of plants out there. A lot of them. I love plants. I've surrounded myself with like a jungle of plants in my backyard. So the gardener comes and he waters them all. And if I don't watch and I don't supervise it, some of the plants do really well and some die. So I've got this gorgeous cactus right outside my door that welcomes a beautiful cactus. All of a sudden it's drooping and it's half dead. And I'm going because he's watering it the same way he's watering the other plants. The plants are, so is water bad? It is if you're a cactus. (laughs) And even then it's not bad, it's bad if you have too much of it, just like a peanut allergy, even one peanut is too much for somebody. So my point is that we have to look beyond just the properties of the food, the properties of the diet, the properties of the experience I was abused, I was an addict, I was a this, this happened to me, I was an addict. Those are the qualities. We have to look at the integration of that with the person. So I have always said it is never about finding the right diet. It is about finding the right fit between diet and person. Mm. And that's always what it's about, whether it's on a dating site, it's not about finding the perfect person. It's about finding the per- perfect person for you, which could be incredibly different than the perfect person for somebody else.
0: Mm.
1: And once we get that, you start to look at a lot of this stuff a lot differently. I mean, people who are going from diet to diet to diet are really looking at what works for me. They're looking at, well, if that one works for Beyonce, well, how could, okay, let me try the one that works for Jane Fonda. Doesn't matter. They're all The real action is in finding out what really works for you. Mm. And that's kind of how I look at it with with, uh, health and fitness as well
0: as life. I think balance is a key word that not many people, even myself, struggled with for for many, many years. And like if I was to look, because I was addicted to many different things, I ended up having an eating disorder. Um, And if I was to look back, at what caused it the truth is i don't know you don't
1: know and, and honestly if you want it, my opinion from 50 years more of looking for every reason it's not worth your time no. to know what it doesn't matter those reasons might be long gone mm. you know do you, do you know what i mean i know i what mean yeah. shy because they were traumatized once in fourth grade okay well those people aren't around now Mm-hmm. So really, you're, it's it doesn't matter what the instance was. You're walking into circumstances feeling like you're going to get bullied because you're remembering what happened in fourth grade, but that's not there anymore. Yeah. So it, it, I think the action really, as someone who has tried figuring that out with 15 different therapists and 15 different, you know, why did that happen? Who cares? Is From this vantage point, I'm saying it doesn't much matter. What matters is you got here and now let's go forward. Mm. and that really applies to most
0: people i think oh, yes. i
1: think
0: good advice good. From- very good advice very important for people to listen to that if they are struggling with addiction always know that it's okay you're you're not alone there's many people that do struggle with it i'm included in that dr johnny's included in that but the yeah. main thing is that right now you can you can choose to change like that's always an option it's like whether or not you actually want to um I'm curious, Dr. Johnny, like how did you get stuck into this nutrition side of things of your life? Can you share that story?
1: Um, Sure. So I was, as I said, addicted. I was a professional musician. That was my first career. And um, I I was not an aspiring musician. I was a working musician who made his paychecks from playing music. And um, I wasn't that great at it. But I was a functioning, working musician, and um, I did. I, I kind of started out in jazz and and rock and roll and pop and all that, and I drifted somehow into Broadway shows when they started becoming more pop. Mm-hmm. Little Shop of Horrors, Joseph and the Amazing, Dreamcoat, Jesus Christ Superstar. They started and they started using more pop musicians in there to get that. So I I kind of mm-hmm. fell into that, and um, I was still fat. I was out of shape. I couldn't run a city block without being winded. I smoked a couple of packs of cigarettes a day. I drank. So I'm on the road doing a show in 1980, I think. And I the actors, you know, when you go on the road with this stuff, you basically, once the show is set up, all you gotta do is show up at night for sound check and the rest of the day is free. And it can be very boring if you don't have a lot of things to do. And all the actors went to the gym. They all stayed in great shape. That's their job. They have to look good. And really out of boredom, I, I remember like we were being, we were in a house we had, and, and I just said to one of the, the guys, what, what is this stuff you do? And he looked really good. And I got I like to look like that. How do you do that stuff? And show me a weightlifting exercise. I say, that's how it started. Wow. And I was one of those people who like, wow, wait a minute. And, and I, I, you know, um, slowly, not, not overnight, but slowly, I put a little time into it. I got a little bit better at it. I liked the camaraderie of the actors. I started hanging out with them. I started going to the local gym. They knew every gym in every city. You get to the city, they knew exactly where it was. Um, and slowly, I shed weight. I'm looking younger. I feel more energetic. Waking up in the morning instead of at 11:30 in the afternoon, you know. Um, and as I began this this personal transformation, um, obviously I stopped doing drugs and alcohol very shortly before that, but I still had the physical effects of you know 15, 20 years of doing that. So I was certainly in no shape. But as I began to see those changes, I just got zealous about it it was like this is too good I would and then like everyone you start a new field you think you're an expert in it and you know you want to teach it to everybody else but I I grew up as a as a kind of um overachieving middle class New York City Jewish progressive academic and like you know all my parents were like what degrees do you get are you a lawyer so I'm doing this stuff. And I'm going, I wonder, can you get a degree in this? I'd like to have a degree in this personal training stuff. So I found out that you could, you can get certified as a personal trainer. There was, you know, ACE and ACSM and NASM and all these organizations, National Academy of Sports Medicine. So I went and got certified as a personal trainer. And then I really fell in love. Then it was like, Oh my God, this is a profession you get to do. Are you kidding? So I got another certification and I actually wound up getting six. And There, I was lucky enough, I I was in New York, my home city, and uh, we were in between shows, and I see this big sign in a very trendy area of Manhattan. You wouldn't know it in Australia, but the Upper West Side. And and here's this sign. I don't even know if you'll know the name, but in in the States, everybody now knows this name. But first time ever seen is a big sign saying Equinox Gyms.
0: Mm.
1: And Equinox now is maybe the most prestigious chain of gyms in the country. And, uh, but at the time, it was one little gym on Amsterdam Avenue. And it was owned by a family. And this was their first. And I walked in. And I said, well, I'm a personal trainer. I have. And I don't know why, but I connected with the owners. I was a little older. I mean, I'm in my 40s. All the trainers are 18. Um, we kind of connected. And they hired me. And I started... On the day that Equinox opened in Manhattan, I was there for seven years. I ultimately became the dean of the Equinox Fitness Training Institute, which is how they train trainers. And and that's how I got into personal training. And I knew zippity-doo-dah about nutrition because all personal trainers are taught um, by, at that time anyway, 1990, all our information came from in America. It was called the American Dietetic Association. They've changed their name because it's such a vile organization. They were trying somehow to get away from the reputation of the American Dietetic Association. So now they're the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. They are the same litigious organization that they that they always were. And um, but we bought it. Low fat diets. You don't need supplements because why? You can get everything you need from food, right? This is all the talking points of what we were taught as trainers. Um, I believed it. I was one of those low-fat people. I was so zealous about the low-fat diet that if I would go out to a restaurant and order and egg a white omelet, the dumbest idea in nutritional history, but I would order them. And if they came with a little bit of yolk, I'd send it back because I was so sure that oh, that's cholesterol. I'm going to get a heart attack. What's and and so i was a true believer and like most trainers at the time and i'm sorry to say most doctors who still believe this we believed that if our if our clients weren't doing well if they were not losing weight on the on the programs we were giving them they had to be cheating so if we see somebody who's 50 to 100 pounds overweight and they're huffing and puffing on the treadmill and they come and they say doc all i'm doing is eating whole wheat toast and orange juice and a banana and special k and i'm eating low fat and and i'm not losing anything they're lying they're cheating in fact sidebar there is a very moving and wonderful lecture that everybody should watch it's a ted lecture by one of the great doctors in in america named peter atia he has a very popular podcast that a lot of people watch Um, And he gave a TED lecture in which he was almost in tears, apologizing to the decades worth of diabetic clients that he treated and worked with, that he was thinking, you just don't have any willpower. you just, you know, you just don't have that. Blaming the victim for these metabolic issues that he now realized was, you know, they weren't lying. We had shitty advice. And that was something none of us were willing to consider that like, maybe they're not doing so well because what we're telling them is bullshit. Did you ever think of that? Oh no. What we're telling them is right. So if if it's not working, they gotta be faking it. So that's how I was. And I'm not saying that the low fat diet never worked for any human on earth. Obviously there are people who, for whom it has worked. Mm. There well, are many less of them than most people in most audiences would think. They think, oh, if only I could do that, I, I too would be... Le-. No, it didn't work for most people. And statistically, in terms of the actual research on long-term interventions of low-fat diets, it's dismal, absolutely dismal effects. A half a pound lost in six months. I mean, nothing, nothing to write home about. And, and during this time... Early 90s, Atkins published the third edition of his famous Atkins diet book, which is called The New Diet Revolution. First came out in 1972, a couple editions, 1992. Here's the new edition. Everybody's talking about it. And it is the antithesis of what we teach at the gym, it's the antithesis of what we believe in medicine and health. And we would have clients who would come in and say, I'm going to try this Atkins thing because this shit's not working. And we would go, you cannot do that. Are you crazy? You might lose a pound or two, but saturated back, cholesterol, heart disease, you're dead, you can't do it. Mm. They didn't listen to us, you know. And they would come back and they would not be dead. <laughs> Very far from it. You know, and we were seeing these things that our brains told us shouldn't be happening. Like, why is he losing weight on a high-fat diet? Why is this, why are, And and some of the things that you can't really measure on paper, like, why are his eyes clearer? Why does he have more energy? Mm. Why, his waist looks a little smaller. What's going on? We, we thought this thing killed you. Mm. So now you got a dilemma. Either... It doesn't kill you, in which case, perhaps what we were taught is not right. Or it does kill you, in which case these people are illusions. (laughs) They're not standing here, (laughs) you know. Um, So I began to question some of the conventional wisdom. And as soon as I did, I got a lot of pushback from the establishment. Like I had been teaching trainers at Equinox Fitness Training Institute. I spoke at conventions of personal trainers. Now I'm getting, more. when I taught low-fat diet, do the Stairmaster, count your calories, everybody, oh, he's great. He really knows his stuff. Now I'm saying, you know, guys, I don't think saturated fat is quite what we have been taught it is. There may be some other things going on here. And all of a sudden it was, What does he know? He's not even a nutritionist. He's certainly not a doctor. Why is, why are we letting him teach this stuff? Which always happens when, when you, it does not happen when you're not questioning the conventional wisdom. Then you can go and speak at Harvard if you want, but, you know, start to, to diverge from the talking points. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, everybody's looking at your credentials and where did he go to school and what did he do? So I did what a number of people have done, which is I went back to school. I said, I I kind of, I'm skipping over all the time, all the, it wasn't just like, I think we may have been taught wrong. After a couple of years, it's like, dude, where did we get this stuff from? It's all bullshit. And obviously that had much less of a good reception than when I was towing the line. So I went back and I got the letters after my name and then fully equally qualified to be to debate these things with the people who are making i i would then go up there and take the stand and um i you know i'll go on tv or on a radio show or on a podcast with any dietitian in the country ever i am and bring it on and i'll give you facts and figures and studies and 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 metabolic pathways and everything else that they need to hear to show them why what we have been taught is simply not true and um it kind of dovetailed a little for me because I've always, I grew up hating bullies. I just did long, but it, bullies are, the, are the, the trigger for me that, that just makes my head explode. And to me, the medical profession has been bullying us for, I don't know, since 1986. Yeah. I have, I had clients who like the doctor would say, re- we're firing you if you don't go on a statin drug. And if you even presented any argument against it, it's like, no, you're just a bad patient and you're just, you're just contrary. So, yeah. I don't like bullying. I don't like it when it comes from, you know, big guys in the schoolyard. And I don't like it when it comes from people with MDs after their name who think they know everything about nutrition because they're a medical doctor. So that's kind of how I wound up on this side of the fence. Now, how I wrote the great cholesterol myth, how I went from being a personal trainer and then finally a nutritionist is that because I did have a writing background, I, 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 was always a writer. Even when I was a musician, I was, I was writing, I would write about music and um, I got a book deal and I was lucky enough to write a book called the hundred my third book was 150 healthiest foods on earth. And it was, a, it was a very big bestseller. It just had a 10th anniversary edition released a couple of years ago. So it's still in print and it still sells well. It's been updated, but the point is book, publishers love sequels just like movie producers do you know die hard did well let's have a die hard two three four five six you know (laughs) fast and furious seven so we had this 150 concept 150 healthiest foods and they did a series it was the 150 best ways to increase your energy and 150 ways to live longer and 150 um comfort food recipes everything was 150 and we were running out of titles and the publisher said, we have got the best title. Well, we got it. We got your next book for you. What is it? I say, 150 best ways to lower your cholesterol. Fuck the mic, they say. And I go, well, it's a clever idea for a book, but it's not for me. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, I don't think cholesterol is the target for heart disease prevention. I think it's the wrong target. And I think it's a waste of time. I really don't want to spend a lot of time writing a book on how to lower something that I think we should, is not the primary. Very target. And I don't want to contribute to this notion that if you lower your cholesterol, you are therefore reducing the risk of heart disease. And of course, they, they thought I was nuts. And uh, we went back and forth about it a lot. And I said, you know, if you want me to write a book about this, I'd love to write it, but it'll be something like The Myth of Cholesterol. And I, I was able to con- convince them enough that there was a growing minority of, of legitimate medical doctors. PhDs, and the like, who were questioning the cholesterol hypothesis as we know it. And they finally said, okay, we'll let you, we'll publish this book, but you have to have a co-author. The co-author has to be an MD. They wanted cover. I don't blame them. The MD has to be a cardiologist, and he has to be very famous. (laughs) If you can find us a cardiologist like that who will agree to write the book with you, we'll publish it. I called up Dr. Steven Sinatra, a longtime associate, brilliant cardiologist known all around the world. I said, do you wanna write this book, debunking this cholesterol shit? He said, right on, yes. And that's how that got to be published. Amazing. And that's how we got on the, we went teaching bench presses at Equinox to writing about cholesterol, because look, here's why. It's really a much straighter line if, if you're wondering what the, what the trajectory is. I'm teaching people how to lose weight. I'm really good at it. And I'm training people. And I'm talking to them about their diet. And I'm telling them, because I know this to be true, you probably know this to be true. Many people in the field know this to be true. The more carbs they eat, the fatter they're gonna get. Mm. And the less fat they eat, the more carbs they're gonna eat. So here I am trying to correct their diet and I'm going against all of the conventional recommendations. Now, think about those recommendations. Think about you personally. Why has your doctor ever told you don't eat animal foods? Why has any nutritionist or health professional told anyone you know, any of your friends, your mother, your father, anybody, what's the rationale for not eating saturated fat and animal products? It's always, always that it raises your cholesterol which in turn, raises your risk for heart disease. Mm. What if that's not true? Let it sink in for a minute if you're listening to this. If that's not true, what happens to the dietary guidelines? Because they're based on that. Yeah. And and, and if it's not true, (laughs) it's like we're driving a ship in a direction because the compass says that's where we want to go, but what if the compass is broken? So if, if, if saturated fat doesn't cause heart disease and higher cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease, what happens to those dietary guidelines? They crumble like a house of cards, like dominoes. You just blow on them and they all just fall apart because that's their only reason for existing. The only reason, no one listening to this can tell me a reason that they've been told to avoid animal products um, or saturated fat that doesn't involve cholesterol and heart disease. So for me, as a trainer, just helping people lose weight, it was critical to break the the stranglehold that these dietary recommendations had on people. Because they're eating this cockamamie bullshit diet of processed cereal and pasta and potatoes and rice and and cookies and cakes and all the stuff and trans fats and vegetable oil. They're eating this diet thinking it's healthy. So you really can't go any further with transforming people's bodies till you bust a a, a hole the size of a bayonet through these dumb dietary recommendations. And that's how I kind of switched, or not switched, but evolved into someone whose mission is to say that emperor has no clothes when it comes to the dietary guidelines and that we have been misled for various reasons, very interesting reasons. I wrote a book about it. Nina Teichlow wrote a book about it, Gary Taubes. We've all written books about how this crazy situation happened. It's not really controversial anymore, but we hear, like you said, does it really matter why, you know, someone fudged data, somebody had a political agenda, who met? What we're stuck with is a world in which everyone thinks low-fat diets are healthy
0: mm.
1: and that vegetable oil is preferable to saturated fat. And that's my mission. My mission is to put a hole in that. And and actually, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about getting this message out, of course, I want to sell books. Yes, that's a big, uh, I would love my books to sell. That's one of the ways. But I give this, I I write about the same subject for free everywhere. And I talk about it for free. And here's one of the reasons I'm so, I I think it's so vital to get this message out right now. We're in a COVID epidemic. Whatever country you live in, it's whether you believe it's real or whether you believe, like some people in the United States do for reasons I can never comprehend, that it's all fake, it is affecting everybody, okay? No one disagrees about the preconditions that make COVID much more serious. Let's look at what they are. Obesity, heart disease, diabetes, pre-diabetes, basically every single condition which is directly connected to diet. So this low-fat, high-carb, high-starch, high-sugar diet has created a epidemic of something called insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, also known as pre-diabetes, and that basically just weakened the entire population. Now, I'm not saying people this isn't a horrible disease and people wouldn't be dying, but I personally don't think they would be dying at the rate they are if they weren't metabolically damaged and they're metabolically damaged because of dietary advice that we have been giving people since 1986. So it is more important than ever that people realize how bad that advice was and how much it underlies the metabolic conditions that actually make you much more vulnerable to COVID. You want to do something about COVID? Change your diet is number one. Yes, mask, yes, distance, yes. But the underlying weakness that makes people even more susceptible to this is a dietary change that can be accomplished much quicker than a vaccine can be invented. So I feel it's critical now more than ever for
0: this to be addressed. Mm. I have to totally agree with you on that. I also think that because of the foods that we ate, the wrong kinds of foods because of what we were taught Uh, I was taught like the five food groups, you should eat this, this, and this. But they didn't tell you, okay, you got extra virgin olive oil, you got uh, canola oil, you got vegetable oils. What that actually does There's actually research to show that if you keep eating vegetable oil, it actually gives you cataracts later on in life and it blinds you. Plus it does so many other damages to your body. One of the things that I always, I believe first and foremost, the kinds of foods that we eat, really affects our immune system our entire
1: oh dude absolutely well do you get pushback on that that's that is like saying to me two and two is four there is no doubt about that i mean i could give you chapter and verse and study and research and figures and facts and metabolic pathways no question about it and in here's i'll give you i'll go one further than that so i live right near the California wildfires. They're always like a mile from Topanga Canyon. And so we have fire departments and we have all the engines and stuff. So when one of those fires comes, we want every single fire person, man and woman, to be well-nourished, well-slept. We want the fire engines to be in working order. We don't want the spark plugs to be missing. We want everything to be ready to mount a response to this terrible challenge, right? Suppose there were a bunch of crazy teenagers who are setting off little fires and pale. They're not really gonna, not, they're not gonna burn down villages, but they're annoying and they're diverting all the resources. All the firemen are out there putting out these bullshit little fires and pails because everybody, they're, they're kind of for unforced errors. We're doing them to ourselves. Now here comes the Topanga wildfire. Who's left to go fight it? Not too many, how much damage is it going to do? More than if we had the fire department. That's your immune system. Mm-hmm. Your immune system is the fire department. And when you divert it with this with the low-fat diet, with high-processed foods, with foods that damage your metabolism, then you have an underlying condition where the fire department ain't ready. Yeah. So when something you may not notice it. It's just like having good health insurance, but it's shitty health insurance. It won't cover anything, but you don't know it because you've never had to use it. Well, same thing with your fire department. You think it's all working great until you get the Topanga fire. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening here. Insulin resistance is the most widespread metabolic condition, metabolic disease in the world. Over 50% of the globe has it in America, they say up to 88%. It is widespread. It underlines diabetes, pre-diabetes, obesity, it even even underlines Alzheimer's, which they now call type three diabetes because it underlines that. We can turn around insulin resistance, reverse it, prevent it or treat it with diet alone. And that's why this book and this message is so important. If you don't buy the book, I don't care. You've got to change. You can change your diet and correct insulin resistance, which is an error in carbohydrate metabolism. It just means that your particular body is unable to deal with the particular sugar load that you're giving it. doesn't mean... That somebody else couldn't deal with it, but it means that for your particular metabolism, it's too much sugar. And for some people, that might be one spoonful a day. For another person, it might be the whole dominoes, uh, bag of dominoes. Doesn't matter. It's not really the whole bag. For most people, it's going to be somewhere between, you know, the one and the, it's not going to be bags and bags of it. But the point is, it's a very individual response. So you don't get to say, well, he eats that much sugar, and he, no, it doesn't matter. It's you, how, how does it affect you? And for more than 50% of the world, they are eating more starch and sugar than their bodies were adapted to, than they're able to process. And the result is this underlying condition that makes you metabolically sick. And when you are metabolically sick, your immune system doesn't work as well as it should, period. I'll have to say that's the on connection that. to COVID.
0: I love that connection. I also go, like, when you go to the supermarket, as Americans call it, or um, shopping, and you look at the food. What do you guys, back, what do you guys what do you call it? We just call it shopping. Like, we just say Coles or Woolies. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we, don't, we don't say supermarket. It's like, oh, nah. Oh, good. But when you walk in and you go buy your okay. food, you look at the food labels. I, I don't like the health rating. That they have, that they're given, because that's from the dietary requirement, saying that it is quite healthy. But yet, when you turn it over, you look at the ingredients; oh. it is so bad for you. And people are none the wiser, and yet they think, "Oh, I'm going to eat something that you know is good for me because the label says so." It gets in in people's subconscious or even conscious brain. They're thinking what they're doing is actually good for them, but it's really not. Like That's why I encourage people to look at what's in the food first and foremost. And then if it has all the bad, if it has numbers, it shouldn't be. You shouldn't eat it. (laughs) Don't eat anything with numbers on it. Um, On the back of it, I should say. No preservatives, nothing, the whole bit. I, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you.
1: And and some of those ingredients are worse than others. I mean, there are some preservatives that are fairly harmless. I mean, it's not like any chemical in the world. You wouldn't be able to transport food across, you know, from one town to another if it didn't have some of those things. It, it, it's a matter of degree and it's a matter of which chemicals and is the thing completely processed. You mentioned the five growing up with the five food groups. I often say on these podcasts, because I, I, I think it's an easy thing to sound like to remember, the best dietary advice I ever gave and the best dietary advice I ever got was this: eat foods from the four, but eat foods from one of the. I call them the Johnny Bowden four food groups. But you can go food you could hunt, fish, gather, or pluck. Those are the four groups. If you and and it doesn't even mean that you have to hunt it right now in your neighborhood, like in, in California. It means food that you could have hunted, you could have fished for, you could have gathered off the ground because it fell from a tree or it grew from from the from the earth. Or you can pluck it off a tree like an apple or a nut. Mm. And if you can, if they fall into those four groups and it's minimally processed, it ain't bad for you. And that's really, I think, the the, the core dietary strategy. I I like lower carb diets. I think that they're healthier than higher carb diets. Generally speaking, there are always going to be exceptions and exceptions. There's a tribe in South Africa that eats 80% of carbohydrates, but the carbohydrates they eat are nothing you and I would recognize in industrial, in Sydney, Australia, or in Los Angeles. They're not the carbs you get at, as you say, the grocery store. They're bitter, natural, you know, fruits and vegetables and tubers that like, you know, to our palate would be far too, but there's about 80 grams of fiber in their diet. And they do eat mostly carbs, but we're not eating that. So there are exceptions. It's not a, a, a blanket thing, but generally speaking, I think higher fat diets are more natural. It's what we ate for most of our time on the planet. There were, agriculture wasn't invented until like a minute ago on the 24-hour time clock of, of human history. Um, so I think in general, they're better, but I am less attached to whether it's a high-fat diet, high-protein diet, huh? that it be a real food diet. If you start with it being real food, the rest is details. And and we could argue forever. And maybe it should be a little less protein, a little more... Car- if it's all in the category of those four food groups and it's real food, you are going to be way ahead of the curve, no matter what particular dietary plan you follow.
0: I mm, absolutely love this. I do have a ton more questions, but I wish I had more time. We're definitely going to have to do a part two. Have uh, me back, have me back. I'm going to definitely have, have back. you back, Dr. Johnny, because there's so many Have me back, I'd, want, I'd love uh, to come uh, on with you. you uh, my yeah, final please question please. for you right now for this one is this is my all-time favorite question, okay? So we've been talking about a lot oh, of interesting things. But I'm going to switch I it back wait. to you and your life. You're, you, I believe you okay. said that you're 74 right now. Is that correct? I am, yes. 74 in three days. 74, which is an amazing number to be at. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. You've been able to get to that age. And I, I believe that is it is actually possible with the way you're going. And your friends have decided to put together a film for you, a Dr. Johnny Bowden film of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. They're not me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Oh, my God.
1: That's, a, that's a better than a Tim Ferriss question. That is like an all-time greatest interviewer question in the world thank you um what, what would i wanted to say and show well i have been i've been asked what do i want people to say about me if i was about you know and i do have an answer to that i the the, the thing i think i would like most for people to think about me or remember me by is that is to be able to have them say he was very generous mm. um to me generosity in all its aspects not just financial but in all of its aspects with time with attention with caring generosity is maybe the, it's one of the greatest compliments you can give to anybody mm. um and so that's something i would like i guess i i don't have grandiose visions of having changed the world, but I would love that film to show that I had some impact on some people and that there were people, maybe it's two, maybe it's four, maybe it's half a dozen who were in some way changed or touched by something I did or said and, or wrote. And that I was good to the people I loved and that they loved me back. I think, I don't know that you could ask for much more at the end of life than then that kind of a tribute
0: that is a beautiful answer that is profound you've definitely made an impact on me today and i definitely want to have you thank back you. so many more things i could thank ask you. you but dr johnny thank you so much for part one yeah. of this conversation on the story box podcast where we left off i think it was towards the great cholesterol myth that we sort of dived into a little bit but Uh, I was left with a question about, so my family, we have uh, high cholesterol in the family, so it's genetics. And I'm curious about, so if someone was to have high cholesterol right now and it is genetic, is there a way to still bring it down, to still manage it or to even say, for example, um, heal it, if that makes sense?
1: It does, but there's a pre-question that you have to ask, and I want your audience to take this with them. This is the most important thing. When, when someone says to me, we have high cholesterol, I stop the conversation and I say, measured how? Mm. It, it is impossible to really underestimate how important that question is because if you measured it the wrong way, the, the rest of the conversation doesn't make sense. Mm. I don't know if I gave you this analogy before. So let, if I did, I forgive. Please forgive me for doing it twice. And if you haven't heard it, then I, I think it's a pretty good analogy. We have in California, in the United States, very strict emission standards for our cars. And we have to get smog checked. So you go to these authorized places where they have smog checking machinery. They have a a big, you can look it up and see what it looks like. It's a big thing and it's got all these dials and it looks all this scientific and they attach it to the exhaust and they run a series of tests and they tell you whether it's okay or whether it needs fixing and if it needs fixing what you need to do. So let's say you go to one of these, and you want to, you have to do it. It's, it's a legal requirement. You can't get a registration for your car unless it passes emissions. And you go to the emissions place, and they say, "Hey, Johnny, uh, car doesn't pass emissions. In, in fact, it's going to need some repairs. It's going to be about seven, 1750 dollars worth of repairs. You've got very high emissions." And you go, well. I guess I have to because my emissions are high and I certainly want the car to not be a toxic waste. What if you then found out that the machine was broken, that the machine hadn't been calibrated since 1963, that there were toxins that had been created, chemicals, things that show up in emissions tests that are tested now that didn't even... Weren't even invented or released in the environment in 1963. The machine they're using doesn't even know how to find those. Mm. Then you would have one of two cases. You could have people going in there and having their car passed with flying colors, and they go out there in the world and say, hey, man, I'm really compliant, and my car is, and it's a toxic waste dump. Because the machine never picked those things up. And on the other hand, you could be the guy who is now about to shell out $1,750 in order to fix something that isn't a problem because the machine measured it wrong. Mm -hmm. So going back to cholesterol, the minute you say high cholesterol, I go high emissions, I want to know what store you went to get the emissions measured. Because I know that the one that most people use, which is the HDL-LDL test is broken. It's as broken as that emissions machine. It was good technology in 1963. It is pathetic technology now. We have something called nuclear magnetic resonance, NMR. The NMR cholesterol test goes into the lipoprotein, tells you how much cargo is in there. It tells you the size and shape of the lipoproteins. It tells you the pattern of distribution. It tells you the number of particles, the number of lipoproteins floating around. These things, it has been found, are important. Mm. HDL and LDL is like the flip phone, for God's sake. It's like, yeah, it was a good, everybody wanted the razor when it came out. I did. It was really a great improvement over those big, clunky, you know, phones. And, and you could text on it. You had to hit three times in order to get a letter, but, you know, you could do all these things with it. Dude, is anyone using a flip phone when we have iPhone 12s and Galaxy 8s? So we're using this test because people are too lazy to change it, because they're too stubborn to look at the new research, and you're being tested for cholesterol based on an obsolete measurement. So I will happily talk to you about having high cholesterol, but you've got to understand that the only cholesterol that matters is the test that was developed in the last 10 or 15 years that actually looks under the hood. Because HDL and LDL, and I'll give you personal examples if you're interested, because I am right in this demographic that was tested incorrectly. And when I got tested correctly, I find all this data that was missing from my perfectly, I was the guy whose car passed the emissions test if you use a broken machine. Then I look under the other one and I go, those tests don't agree. Well, when those tests don't agree, the standard one and the new modern one, every single time, not 99, 100% of the time, it's the new modern test that predicts the event. So the old one to, to treat people and go, what can I do to lower this number when we don't even know if that number means anything? It's kind of like it was just on a dartboard. That's the that's where I don't I don't like to answer that without explaining that because people then think you're you're kind of buying into the myth that this high cholesterol measured in this old fashioned way is meaningful. It's not. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll give you an example with myself where I did pass the test. I had very normal, desirable HDL, LDL rates. Every doctor would be delighted with them for years before I knew what I know now. That's the test I had. Doc says, you're terrific. When I learned what I now know about cholesterol testing and and the inadequacy of that test and the more modern tests that cardiovascular experts and functional medicine doctors are using I had one of those tests done on myself. And lo and behold, though my LDL was just fine, the stuff that mattered, which is how many LDL particles are there in the bloodstream, was in the very high risk number. Mm. Now, why did the number of particles matter more than the cholesterol matters? Because cholesterol has to travel in a boat. It can't travel in the bloodstream. All these images we have of cholesterol, and then it gets clogs up the arteries. It doesn't even get into the bloodstream until it travels in a container. The container is called a lipoprotein. That's the L in HDL and LDL. That last L stands for lipoprotein. And the only difference is one is high density, which means that it kind of floats to the bottom of, of any kind of liquid solution. And the other is low density. It's very light, and it will just go to the top. So those are the two classes of boats that we always thought they traveled. When you're trying to prevent an accident in the water, what's more important, the number of boats that you have to manage, or how many towels those boats have in their washroom? The towels are the cargo. What we wanna know is what's gonna crash up against each other are boats. Mm. The bigger the crowd you have to manage, the more chance that there's gonna be a fight. The bigger the crowd in a bar, the more chance someone's gonna spill a drink and step on someone's toes and something's gonna happen. The more cars you have, the more crowd you have, the more likelihood a virus is gonna spread. It's all about the numbers of people or the numbers of boats. And in the arteries, it's the same thing. Hmm. The number of boats tells you the likelihood of an accident, not how much cholesterol they're carrying, not whether they fit into some category. But I have, the good news from my test was that I have been able to do two things. One is, uh, we didn't talk yet about particle size. Another thing the new tests look at is how big is that boat? Is it a little rowboat? Or you got like 15 uh, foot yachts going, you know, in 100 foot yachts in there that can barely turn around. So is it the little ones or the big ones? We need to know that. Well, in the arteries, it's the same thing. It's the nasty, little, tiny, what they call small part, the little LDLs, the damaged ones, the ones that get oxidized, the ones that get inflamed and they get trapped in the endothelial wall and that lead to plaque. Those are the nasty ones. But the LDL-A are kind of like cotton balls. I mean, it's not that they don't matter but they're much, much likely to get into accidents. So don't you wanna know those numbers and and how many are the big fluffy kind, how many are the little, and they call that a pattern. You have pattern A, which is mostly fluff balls, or you have pattern B, which is mostly inflamed little BB gun pellets. Okay, so I was able to do two things. One is I had an abundance of the nasty little pellets. Yes, my old was fine, but they were mostly the real kind you don't want. Mm -hmm. And I had what was called pattern B, which you can think of as pattern bad. It's mostly the little ones. And I also had a number of 2,200 particles. That is the high risk category for the number of LDLs. In changing my diet even more strictly in the direction which I already was going, and in adding very targeted supplements... Six months later, I tested 2200 particles had gone down to 1600. It's still not perfect. We'd like it at 1100. That's a big, that's 20 something percent reduction with, and I'm not done. And the particles shifted from a preponderance of the small ones, which which is pattern B. It just barely made the line, but it got it into pattern A. And I'm going to make it go even further into pattern A. So to answer your question, looking at the real part of cholesterol you want to worry about, yes, you can change it. You can also change the old-fashioned LDL kind as well, but you're, it's kind of like using a shotgun when you only need or using, you know, a, a big sledgehammer when you just need a little jeweler's thing to, to mm. nick at it. Mm.
0: I appreciate you saying all that and sort of clarifying it, especially the, the question that you, you need to ask first. Um, I'm curious about, so you mentioned there that people are, not they're sort of going off the old system and they're not really changing to a newer system. Why is that? And secondly, do we need to have, in order to reduce our risk of actually getting high cholesterol in the first place, do we need to have, firstly, a better diet or is it just more genetics? And secondly, do we need to have these, I guess, the blood thinners or these things that come into play, like supplements and all that sort of stuff, to help out with managing high cholesterol or even locally? Mm-hmm.
1: Let me answer you. Those are two great questions. And I hope by the time I answer the first one, that I remember to answer the second, which is why are we still stuck in the old ways? But before we answer that, let's talk about this last question, which is basically about risk factors. Mm. And I would like everyone, even the younger people in the audience who probably think this doesn't really affect you that much. It actually does. It just happens slower. So just pay attention to this because we get very caught up in specific lab values as risk factors. And we think that's the whole picture. And one of the things we talked about in the book is, yeah, we're going to get into diet and exercise, and you bet they're important, and you bet stress reduction is, and every one of those has a measurable effect. But what we have to remember is that risk factors, they're risk factors. They're not fate accomplies. They are not your destiny. They are things that Move the needle towards a greater likelihood. If you were betting on a football game, they don't guarantee the outcome, right? The odds might be, oh, this team's got a seventy to thirty odd. That's a that's an increased risk of winning, right? No, nobody's going to bet that they that. No one's going to guarantee that they're going to win. They might they might have better odds with the seventy to thirty risk, and the same thing is true with risk factors. And I. People, I think, get so afraid of having a risk factor that's elevated. And yet, but let's put it in perspective. Your relationships with people are a risk factor that often overbalance a lot of these little micro-measures in a lab value. And I'm not saying they don't matter. I'm saying let's look at what else matters. How you live your life. How you sleep. Mm. how you sleep how many hours you sleep and at what stage you sleep i recently invested in this ring i have no commercial relationship with it. it just happens it's the best one made that does this and it has all these little electrodes in it and they measure through it at your body temperature all these signals i don't understand what the algorithm is but they literally give you a readout right. of your sleep quality every day and they show you the number of hours or minutes spent in REM sleep in deep sleep, how restless you were, latency, how long it takes you to fall asleep. The point of which is, I thought I was sleeping great. I got my six hours at night, and I thought I was... When I started to see under the hood what was going on, I was not. And it was accounting for a lot of little symptoms I hadn't really noticed, like tiredness in the afternoon or irritability. Or th- I literally did a sleep rehab so that now I get a rating and they rate you, you know, from zero to a hundred. I never got like in the nineties, it was like barely in the sixties. And now my sleep ratings are usually in the eighties and I can see the number of hours I spend sleeping has gone from six to seven and a half and, and I'm in more restful sleep. Well, it's kind of the same thing. Sleep affects all of the things that affect heart disease. It affects hormones like cortisol, which is a stress hormone. A stress hormone we can have a whole conversation about because it's a major risk factor and promoter of heart disease. So our sleep makes a difference. Our digestion makes a difference because if we have, as we your audience has probably heard a million times, guts, gut health is where it all starts. If Crap gets into the system through holes in the gut, which we call leaky gut. Then the immune system is now occupied fighting off these things, which may or may not be very dangerous, but they occupy the immune system. So you've got a whole mess if your gut health isn't good. That means digestion, elimination. We just talked about sleep. And then the hormone cortisol, which is such a nasty player in heart disease that it can almost bring on a heart attack by itself in extreme cases. And we act as if the stress of daily life that elevates that hormone every single day, like that doesn't matter, but we should be worrying about our cholesterol. For those who can't do anything about their cholesterol, you can do something about your stress. And I look at health as a big bank account where you have some withdrawals or risk factors of withdrawal. Okay, you start at a minus there, but then you make all these deposits, you take vitamin D. You have a great conversation with someone where you don't multitask and you actually pay attention. You're actually present and you see what that makes you feel like. You meditate, you go for walks, you get exposed to some greenery, you get vitamin D, you, you do some charity or some volunteer work or something in your community or your church or your, or your temple or your mosque or your atheist organization but or your AA group, but some group that is bigger than just you. And these things have profound effects on our total risk for heart disease. And I just, we spent 20% of the book on this stuff saying that, okay, now we've told you about diet, we've told you about exercise, we've told you about the tests to get and what your cholesterol does and the importance of triglycerides, but this other stuff, this other stuff is life and death stuff. And people do not give that the credence that they give things like the tests we're talking about. That's my answer about risk factors. We can modify risk factors. We can also eliminate, or if not eliminate them, but counterbalance some of those risk factors by making more deposits in our health account. So even if we have those, maybe it's a genetic risk factor that you can't do anything about, like the APOE4 gene, which increases enormously your likelihood of Alzheimer's, but it doesn't ensure it. Even if you have two copies of it, it makes it really likely, but there's still some options in there and there are still some programs that can delay it. And so even if it's a genetic risk factor, there are things that you can do right now that will help create a positive, a bank account. And that's really what you want.
0: And it's good to start young as well. Like I'm, I'm only 24 and because we were tested, my dad has my cholesterol and we need to be very mindful of that. So everything that I put into my body, especially I love how you mentioned sleep because people call me crazy sometimes that I go to bed at 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, but I, I value my sleep because if I, if I don't get my sleep, then I notice the, the after effects, the negative after effects of not getting a good night's sleep, which is I'm irritable. Number two, my digestion doesn't work as well. Number three, I don't exercise as good, which then also affects every other part of my body. So so I I use sleep as my recovery mechanism, that if I don't recover well, Mm -hmm. I won't be able to perform as best as I can be. And I value that above anything else that I do, Dr. Johnny. Like It is is set in stone and I won't change. Because if you change just one day or one night, it starts a chain reaction, right? Like it's, it only takes one. So I I always say to young people, get your sleep because when you get older or even when you're younger as well, the, the after effects of not getting a good night's sleep can be so detrimental to you um, afterwards. Um, But also I wanted to ask you, uh, leading back onto my my first question that I asked as well, which is, why hasn't the system really changed?
1: Well, Upton Sinclair, who's a great American writer, had a saying, saying, um, and I'm paraphrasing it, but it was something like, it is difficult to get a man to change his position when his salary depends on him not changing it. <laughs>
0: That's good.
1: And, and there is a $31 billion a year industry devoted to having people lower LDL cholesterol there's huge aspects of the food industry of big food that just caters to the whole low fat no cholesterol um, you can't that's like trying to turn around a the Queen Elizabeth in a, in, a, in a harbor. You know, you've got a huge boat there you've got to steer in, and there are vested interests in it. I'm not saying they're evil, I'm saying this is there's often a certain homeostasis a kind of laziness and reverting to the mean for every profession where you start starting to get lazy and you do it because, well, we've always done it that way. Well, why is this way better? And I, the burden of proof is of course on you, but they're very reluctant to see that because it means a lot of changes. And even today, I I, t- I talked to a cardiologist on the phone yesterday whose patient, on my urging, said, please order one of the latest tests. And this poor guy was actually open-minded to it. And he said, it's not even on the list. We can not even order it even if we wanted to. I don't even know what it is. So there's resistance both on the part of people who, who are just like, I'm not changing. I'm a doctor. I know best. And you got this off the internet, that mentality. And people like this cardiologist said, like, tell me about this, but- if the whole system has been set up to not have him be able to, maybe insurance doesn't cover it because it's a little more expensive. Maybe there's just a hundred reasons why people don't change their ways as quickly as we would like them to. But you know what? The history of health, and I'm sure this is true in other people's fields who know their fields a lot better than I do, but in health, we have had vitamin C discovered around, I don't know, 1730 when that, when, uh, the captain's name escapes me right now, but it was a ship captain. And he took limes and, and lemons on board and he was able to prevent an enormous number of deaths from this disease they had not yet identified called scurvy. And they didn't know what it was in the limes that were protecting people, but that's how English sailors became known as limes. And when they identified that the this, this substance in the lime was ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C, you would think, Everybody got vitamin C 50 years before vitamin C was accepted and, and, and considered, you know, yes, that's a, a, that's a real vitamin. We actually need that. We should actually maybe give that to people. Yeah. That would be a good idea. But in those 50 years you have people just like we have in the cholesterol world now who are saying, what are, are you kidding? And you mm. have the same thing. Homocysteine is a blood measure that that some of the more sophisticated health people might know, many might not, but it's a measure that you get tested in your blood and it's a measure of inflammation. And in early, uh, I've forgotten the year now, but in uh, 40 years ago maybe, the scientist who discovered it, Kilmer McCulley was a professor at Harvard and he, had, he was a distinguished professor with a, quite a lab, you know, allotment. He had a lot of post-doc kids working in his lab and, and, and everyone wanted to study under him. And he noticed that there was this substance in the blood of his child patients who had heart disease. And why would a kid have heart disease? He didn't have enough cholesterol to build up in there. So he wasn't going against it. He was just wait a minute. They all have this thing in common. It's called homocysteine. And you know what? As the years go on, he goes, I, this crazy thing predicts heart disease better than the kid's cholesterol. Is something, could we have found something that's even a better? Okay. He gets laughed at at medical conferences. He gets shunned. His labs facilities start to shrink. They move him to the basement. This is over the course of a year or two. Just literally laughed out of Harvard. In disgrace, he leaves Harvard. 25 years later, he is back as a professor of Harvard who welcomed him back, probably didn't give him an apology because homocysteine now is one of the great discoveries of the last century. It's used all the time on tests. We know what it does. It's a very nasty inflammatory compound that that contributes to the risk Profile for heart disease, but at the time that he brought it up and it was took a, it was about 25 years before they before it was like, yeah, this is a real thing. This guy knows what he's talking about. That's so you, when you ask why you have to put it in that context that it always takes the establishment multi years to wrap their mind around new concepts and to embrace them. And, 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 and it kind of starts as, what is he talking about? Oh yeah. I heard of that thing to, Oh yeah, that thing. And why didn't he do that thing? That's the standard practice. And it kind of, kind of works that way.
0: You know? I appreciate you saying all that because it makes me curious to like, this has been going on for many, many years of not changing. So when do you see it actually changing in your lifetime?
1: Um, not entirely. I am I, um, funny that I, I thought of this just now, but Malcolm X, who was a great, you know, taken as a whole, a, a wonderful leader and, and, and inspirational, uh, and he used to speak and he spoke about things that were not accepted at the time at all. And um, he said, when I speak to an audience of a thousand, if there is one person I connect with and one person who gets it, I have done my job. I believe this kind of messaging, there's one audience member who said, wait a minute, I'm gonna ask my doc for a more modern cholesterol test. Great, that's a start. Do I think this is gonna change the world? I had a beautiful article written on me, please everybody look it up, Authority Magazine, and it said, Dr. John, his one big idea could change the world. Very sweet. It ain't gonna change the world because right now, the world's not changeable by one person's idea or 10 people or even the 200 doctors who agree with me or the 600, the 800, it, because these things take, I mean, how long did it take us to make any kind of movement on climate change or on emissions and, and things like that? How long have we known about that? And we're you know, kind of recently really doing anything about it. Um, so it takes, it takes people a lot and institutions a very long time to change. I do not think this will all be abandoned. I can't imagine that there won't be sections of America where they're still selling low-fat, low, low cholesterol, and it's just hard to imagine. But is there a slow, slow change happening? Absolutely. I was preparing a... Uh, a talk that I had to do with slides and I needed some images for like the worst of the low fat advertisements when they would go, you know, eat low fat and fat clogs you. And I was looking for some examples of that or some official advice I could use as examples about really. And it was very hard to find when the first two pages of Google images were all about why the old advice was wrong and why low fat diets were terrible and why high fat, you know, and it was like, where did that come from? I mean, I expected it to be flooded with the standard stuff. So the standard stuff is not being coming at quite as standard, and there may be some changes, and hopefully we will see it in, in five to 10 years. But I think it's going to be a slow evolution because so many issues, economic issues, the way we do medicine in this country, insurance issues, so many things will be affected by it. Because if we really told the truth about it, the foods that are killing us, are the foods that are supported by the governments that, that have subsidies by the governments that are the backbone of the agricultural uh, industry, corn, soy, wheat. So do I ever see the government saying, guys limit your corn, soy and wheat because that's really not good to eat that much of it. That's never going to happen as long as the FDA is committed to also saving you know the agricultural profession, which is one of its mandates. So that's kind of like saying, Well, will Marlboro cigarettes ever make an advertising campaign, an educational campaign that says, you know, you really shouldn't smoke so many cigarettes? No, you can't put the cigarette manufacturers in charge of regulating the industry. And that's kind of what happens when we have these departments of agriculture that really have to support. And, and look, they make a case, you could not support. 8 billion people on, you know, it would be very hard at this time to do a turnaround and be able to produce enough food without making processed food the backbone of it. But I still think that there's an audience for people who actually have the ability to choose, maybe have the means to allocate funds in a way that they buy better food and maybe eat less of it, but they can afford supplements. And those are the people we have to reach because those are going to be the ones in the forefront of this kind of change and maybe they'll tell their parents and eventually um as younger doctors come aboard and they question some of the authoritarian authoritarian ways of the past there will be more room for these kinds of discussions and and more individualization of treatment
0: Mm. well i hope it does change in your lifetime dr johnny so you can actually get to see it um, and all the it's hard good. work that you're actually doing. To it's ret- changing. It's changing. It's good. It's people more- like
1: you are, are getting messages out to people who are basically, no one who's listening to you or me is someone who's, I'm just going to do what authority says to do, whatever the government says to do, or whatever the doctor says to do. I follow it. I don't quite. Those are not your or my audience. So we already know these are people who are at, m- making a serious attempt to think for themselves. Sometimes the establishment's right sometimes it's boneheadedly wrong. It's boneheadedly wrong on low-fat diets and cholesterol and saturated
0: fat. Well, I personally think that I want to reach anybody that, you know, the part part of this is to challenge people's perspectives on things and to get them to think. Like Always. Always. Like, it doesn't matter if you believe something right now. Don't just, like, figure out why you believe it in the first place. And if someone challenges you, then you can further improve that then don't just be naive all the time. Like actually dig a little deeper, especially with this kind of stuff because my entire life, everything that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for organic uh, naturopath that actually helped and figured something out. It wasn't an actual doctor that figured out what was wrong with me. It was an actual naturopath who saw the signs and symptoms. She went into, and I was thinking, Dr. Johnny, like this is is woo-woo, like this is not correct at all. But she went through all the all my symptoms that I that I told her. She asked me more in depth questions than an actual doctor did. It was a surface level, and she was able to really diagnose the fact that I had SIBO and leaky gut and IBS. And yeah. so once Dude, very that, good at that, very very good. And once that and happens, by the way, happens, just
1: just a, a quick in America, they license naturopaths. And, and the ones that get licensed in the states that they license them go to actual medical school. It's naturopathic medical school. Hmm. But they are not like, well, you know, they're not like the naturopaths of the 1850s who did an admirable job with what they had to work with, sunlight, water, rest, you know, relax, you know, those kinds of things, natural herbs, botanicals. But naturopathic physicians in, in, in many countries now are licensed and actually go to medical schools like Bastyr, and they really know their stuff. But you're absolutely right. That is the approach of naturopathic physicians and also functional medicine MDs or functional nutritionists. We are interested not in the symptom, but in the person who has the symptom and their entire life and how all these things that we just talked about, from sleep to rest to recuperate, all impact that whole system and how it functions. It's a very different way of looking at the person in front of you than the one that just looks at the chart and says, what's the symptom? What are we treating? And and I wanted to go back to something you said about your sleep and how fanatic you were about it because you saw these effects and they were very dramatic and you saw what happened when you didn't sleep and you saw what happened when you did sleep. You're lucky. And this is what I would want to tell your other 24-year-old listeners. It's not always obvious as as it was to you. It wasn't to me. Up to 10 years ago, I got six hours of sleep and thought I was doing great. The point is what you are observing, it's just like you're a more sensitive listener in a way. And so that's happening to every one of us. We just don't feel it. Just like I didn't feel the difference until I said, wait a minute, this is... That's what my sleep looks like. I better make some changes. Oh, that's what it feels like when you have Oh, you're not irritable anymore. That's incredible. I didn't realize that was related to sleep. So know that that kind of stuff on a cellular level is happening, whether you know it or not. There are studies that show that sleep deprivation literally can create a condition called insulin resistance, which we say in the great cholesterol myth is underlying every cardiometabolic disease in the world. And insulin resistance, which is what I believe everyone should be concentrating on, which is basically just eating too much carbs, that's the short form of that. But insulin resistance can be created by sleep deprivation, and it can be reversed in a few days with the proper sleep. So if it can change something as metabolically fundamental as how you process carbohydrates, you think just because you don't notice it, it ain't doing stuff to you? It is. Mm. And that's what happens in aging. So you are so smart and lucky in a way that you had the symptoms that they were close enough to the surface. Oh, something's going on here. I better look into it because most people, especially when you're younger and you can kind of fight off anything might not notice those symptoms, but believe me, they are wearing it down, whether you know it or not. So it is time, whatever age you are, it is time to pay attention to sleep.
0: Mm. And trust me, like, before that all happened before i was more in tune with my body i didn't listen i didn't listen to what my body was telling me i was naive enough to think that i could go 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 but then each and every time that i did go i went that extra step further i ended up on my back in the hospital somewhere with because my body was just shutting itself down and i wasn't listening to it so now as i am 24 I am more conscious and more aware of things. And the more people that I actually talk to doctors like yourself, Dr. Johnny that have the science that have the research that have actually lived it and experienced it. I'm more aware of it now than ever before, which is a great thing. Um, And I don't, I don't want to ever have to go back to hospital again because it sucks. (laughs) I've been there far too many times. So if you are listening to this uh, young person, even older person, doesn't matter who you are actually Get the research on this yourself. Listen to not just Dr. Johnny or myself. Go and search it out. Like I always say that to people. Um, there's something that you mentioned there, real, real, real interesting eliminating carbs. I love my carbs, <laughs> but is that just simple carbs or complex carbs as well? I actually
1: am not an advocate for eliminating carbs, I'm a, an advocate for eliminating junk. Yes, and unfortunately, the vast bulk of junk food is carbs. Mm. But carbs are also broccoli, and Brussels sprouts, and peas, and carrots, and legumes, and beans, and and things like that. Um, so I, I don't know that you have to eliminate them. I think the carb load on the human metabolism is greater than it. The metabolism was designed to deal with, and how do I know this? Because the human genus, not Homo sapiens, we're the we're the latest version. We're one hundred, hundred thousand, 110,000 years old. But there, there other Homo erectus. There was a whole bunch of homos and the Homo species, and they <laughs> and they came from <laughs> about point two point four million years ago, roughly and then Homo sapiens, that, that, that our version of, of, of uh, the species actually came up at about 110,000 years ago. So for that 2.4 million years, and McDonald's was invented in 1957. So let's, let's think about a time clock for the human genus, genus Homo. 2.4 million years, a second ago we had processed food. 100 years ago? processed food in 2.4 million. So what sustained the genus for 2.4 million years, minus 50? Food you could hunt, fish gatherer pluck. Wasn't even grow because you know, when agriculture came in in that clock, maybe five minutes ago, 10,000 years ago. Mm. So we were never adapted to deal with this load of processed carbohydrates. In, in paleo times, we still had sweet tooths as a functional reason for sweet tooth. The way you got your extra sweet is you were lucky enough to find some kid that was in good shape who could shimmy up to the top of a tree and get the honeycomb and bring it down and you'd all like lick it. That was our sugar or some little bit berries that we could pick up with some, we were not, we haven't evolved to deal with this level of sugar and starch. Mm. And it, it, insulin resistance is a kind of metabolic overload. And it goes against everything we've been taught to say that because, she's, but what about whole grains? But what, what about a high-carb? No, it's not really the natural diet of human beings. And in the places on the planet where it has been, for example, the Bantu in South Africa eat an 80% high-carb diet. Wow, doesn't that go against everything you're saying, Johnny? No, because you and I wouldn't recognize one of those carbohydrates. <laughs> they, are, they are tubers and, and you know grasses and things that grow that are bitter and fibrous, and they get about 100 grams of fiber a day, and it's like, that's the carbs they're eating. Dude. They're not eating Cheerios <laughs> and Special K and cornflakes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you don't have to eliminate carbs, you have to eliminate junk. Or you, or to the extent that you can eliminate junk, your health will, your bank, your health bank account will rise, and the withdrawals will remove be because all of that stuff's inflammatory. We talked earlier about leaky gut. What? Ha- how does that happen? It happens with inflammatory response to foods and and, and things that aren't meant to be in there. Gluten being one of them, it's not for everybody. It doesn't seem to affect everybody in the same way. Clearly, I'm not saying blanket, this is the worst thing in the world, but it it ain't fun for a lot of people and it has a little minor effect on people and cumulative with other things that we take in that are not the best. And then those little holes in the gut wall start to happen and then things get in there and the immune system starts to go down. So all of this stuff's important. And guess what? That doesn't tend to happen with steak and broccoli. You don't know, even overeat with steak and broccoli. You can sit and eat six bowls of sugar-coated cereal while you watch reruns of whatever show is popular in your country. I know we could sit here and watch Friends or Seinfeld and just eat, oh, I have another bowl. Can you do that with steak and Brussels sprouts? Absolutely not, because every system in your in your body from the, the uh, enzyme CCK that goes from the pickup up to the brain and says, no, You've had enough now. You can stop. They don't work with this sugar-coated crap that just makes you want more and more But They work with steak and broccoli. They work with foods you could gather, fish, hunt, or pluck. And that is really, to me, the best nutritional advice I've ever given or gotten, which is to just eat real food. And you can worry about the details later.
0: Mm, I love my broccoli. Or broccoli. Yeah, good. Oh.
1: I hate broccoli. But <laughs> it's a real food. And so there might be some I like. I love peas and people hate them. So again, it's got to be individual. But I, I don't tell people to. I do think that there are people who have done the keto diet or the carnivore diet who have done very well. So I don't think apparently there are people who are adapted or able to, to function quite well on those very strict, restrictive diets. And they like them and they do well on them. And I would be lying if I said there weren't healthy vegans out there somewhere. But I I think they're outliers. I think basically we do need some animal foods in our diet and that we should find a way to sustainably and humanely integrate them into the food supply. There's an incredible movie that just came out called Sacred Cow. I had nothing to do with it except watch it in admiration. And I recommend that people find it if you have some questions about it. The ethicalness, the, the the ethics of eating meat, or the effect on the planet. This is a reasoned, fair, and balanced argument about the role of animals in a food supply in a sustainable way that affects everyone for the good. And it's it's worth hearing that and
0: seeing that. I personally love the carnivore diet. I love my meat. Obviously, everything in moderation. Um, I think it was Michaela Peterson. She has she goes on the carnivore diet because she has a uh, autoimmune disease, I believe it is. Uh, She's a
1: very famous spokesperson for it, sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've I've listened to quite a few episodes of her actually speaking about it. But what I'm curious about, Dr. Johnny, is you've written a book, uh, 150 healthiest foods or something like that. Forgive me if I'm getting it wrong. But 150 healthiest foods on it. Yeah. What are the top yeah. five foods that you would recommend that somebody eat on a daily basis?
1: Well, the, the first premise of that book is that no one food is perfect. There isn't, because you take salmon, wild salmon with no pesticides or anything, and it's just the best in the world. It still has no fiber, and it's still missing certain vitamins. And you take something like, like um, any, the best vegetable, the best cruciferous vegetable has no protein. So no one food gives you everything. And if it does give you everything, it's probably in like a a form like spirulina, but the amount that it gives you is insignificant. So you have to eat combinations of foods, not necessarily together. I don't mean like in food combining, but I think you have to eat a diet that kind of puts a dozen things or so on heavy rotation, like, you know, like a playlist on a, on a DJ's, you know, it's like, I don't know how many times I'm going to keep Rotating these, you're going to hear these 12 songs all night long, you know, whatever else I put in there. Mm-hmm. And if you ask me, like, what would I, if, if I had to stock my kitchen and for 10 days with nothing else here, like, what would I, what would be the ones I would have? Salmon, I'd have a ton of beef because I eat about a half a pound a day. I'd have raw milk or goat's milk. I'd have every nut you can imagine. I'd have a lot of berries. I'd f- have frozen blueberries and cherries and things like that. Maybe some uh, full-fat uh, grass-fed yogurt. I'd have olive oil. Uh, I'd probably have some cheeses. Yep. This is kind of what I did at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> that, I mean, basically, I just had a lot of olives. I had I had all these things that I could make little plates of food with. You know, olives, cheese, nuts. Um, my daily half you know, half pound of burger. Uh, and and again, you know, it sounds like a boring diet, but if you keep those things in heavy rotation, you're hitting a lot of the you know, the really big heavies. You've got the meat, the fish, omega threes, B12, in the meat. you got the, a couple of vegetables in there that you know, because I, I make juices every day. and, and so I'd probably keep a, a that was one of the things I did during the pandemic. I had a lot of celery, apple, carrot, beet, stuff like that ginger turmeric but that's about a dozen foods and I I actually my weight was never better and I wasn't hungry and I, I wound up actually having even less sugar cravings than I normally do and I, I actually think I broke the cookie and ice cream habit which every so often raised, it's weird it's ugly head <laughs> uh, you,
0: you, you would not like to live in my place Dr. Johnny because I have a good friend of mine that has his own cookie business and these cookies are absolutely his on what? Is it- he has his own, oh, his own cookie business the New York style thick cookies they are insanely good no. I get them every two weeks it's um, it's bad <laughs> okay send me some <laughs> I, I, have to, I have to send you these but they are so good I kid you not even even when you come to Sydney I'll treat you to these cookies but I I guarantee you you're gonna love them okay like I might even get you addicted uh, to it.
1: I'll be there, man. <laughs>
0: um, my final question for you, Doctor. I'm sure there's
1: worse things to be addicted to. Uh,
0: 100%. Final my, question? Yeah, My, my final question, because I've really enjoyed this um, whole conversation once again. Um, hey. <laughs> he's He's okay. Too. He's okay. What is the, because we're on the topic of food, and I love asking people this question, but what is the weirdest food combination what? you've ever tried?
1: Weirdest. Well, it's not one I necessarily recommend. I mean, it was a child. As a child, I used to get these chocolate grain cookies. They were chocolate coat, thin coat of chocolate on top of a grain cracker, mm-hmm. and I would eat them with applesauce. I'd put the applesauce on, and I'd sort of suck it off, and you'd have chocolate flavored apple, and then I'd eat the cookie. And that was probably what most people thought was the weirdest thing that I ate.
0: Well done. It still <laughs> sounds delicious to me. It still <laughs> sounds so good. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to go get myself a cookie now. But Dr. Johnny, thank you so much once again for coming back on and explaining oh, a whole lot more. Um, thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast for part two. My, my pleasure.